Hi, Rabbi Schaefer here, and I'm very excited to tell you about the new Schmooze book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make. Over the past 15 years or so, I've dealt with hundreds and hundreds of couples, and I can't tell you the amount of times I look and say, why are you doing this? Do you understand what the relationship needs? Do you understand what your spouse is thinking? I put together this book to detail some of the really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, and the book has been extremely well received. We sent out about a thousand pre-publication copies to Chassan and college teachers, to marriage therapists, and the reviews have been really, really very heartening. If you'd like to get a copy, it's available on Amazon, it's available in your local bookstores, it's also available on theschmooze.com. If you purchase it on theschmooze.com, in addition to the hardcover book, you'll also get the audiobook as well as the ebook as a free bonus. If you'd like to do that, please go to theschmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll greatly benefit from it. Thank you. There are many objects that are used in our lives that have Kedusha to them. For instance, if you use a shofar on Rosh Hashanah, a lulav on Sukkot, if you use various objects, tzitzits, if you use these types of objects, they're called tashmisei mitzvah. They have a certain element of kedusha in them. Certainly when you use them, you have to treat them with respect. But once they're used up, there's no innate kedusha in them. And really the halach is we treat it with respect. And the Ramah says you shouldn't just throw it in the trash. But me'ikad adin, you probably could. There's no kedusha in them. Again, usually what we do is we wrap them up and we'll usually either leave them for someone else to take, if the guy, the trash person takes it, or something alike. But the point is, after I finish using my chauffeur, let's say I no longer, I'm no longer going to use the chauffeur anymore, it's worn out, or whatever it may be, there's no kedusha to it. In theory, I could throw it in the trash. Again, it's not respectful to the mitzvahs. We don't do it. But there's no in a kedusha. Same with tzitzits, same with lulav, same with a sukkah, same with many objects that you use for a mitzvah. There's something else that is a Dover Sheba Kedusha. A Dover Sheba Kedusha is something like Tefillin, Mezuzah, and a Sefer Torah. There, they're treated with a very different regard. If you have a pair of Tefillin, and the partios are worn out, you put them in Geniza. You're not allowed to just throw them out. <clears throat> you have to either bury them or put them into Geniza. Same with the Mezuzah. Same with the Sefer Torah. If you have a Sefer Torah that's puzzle, it has to be buried and put in Geniza. has to be treated with a different manner because it's a Dover Sheba Gedusha. Now, what's the distinction between a mitzvah object, a Tashmishi mitzvah, and a Dover Sheba Gedusha? There's one distinction, and that is the name of Hashem. When you write the name of Hashem on, certainly on parchment, but even not on parchment, on something, that infuses Kedusha into the object, and suddenly it's a whole different item. When a sofa sits down to write partials of tefillin, mezuzah, or <coughs> sefer Torah, he has to have very clear kavana, and especially when he writes the name of Hashem, first he goes into the mikvah, he has to have very clear kavana as to what he's going to be thinking, and normally he also speaks out the words, because what he's doing is he's infusing kedusha into that object. That object is now kadush because he wrote the name of Hashem in it. The first Ramban in Chumash explains that actually the reason why a Sefer Torah that doesn't have one letter is puzzled is because the entire Sefer Torah is really the names of Hashem. We have spaces between words. It says Bereshis, 
space, bara space, elokim space, as Hashemayim v'sa'aretz. But if you were to push all the letters together without spaces, the entire Torah is made up of the names of Hashem. When in fact Hashem gave the Torah to Moshe Rabbeinu, Hashem gave it to him as all sort of letters straight, he saw the names of Hashem right there. <clears throat> we break it up so it's re- legible in terms of the words, Bereshis, Barlukim, but the entire Torah is the names of Hashem. And therefore, if one letter is missing, that means the name of Hashem is missing, and it doesn't have the same Kedusha. Granted, it's Kaddush. Granted, you still have to put in Geniza, but it doesn't have that level of Kedusha that all the names of Hashem are written in the order that they were, and therefore it's different. Okay. Now let's focus on a very important distinction that requires very careful understanding. The Derech Hashem explains to us that when we use terms, specifically names, usually it's what we call a label. So for instance, if I say this is a table, that's a label for the item. It's a convenient way to refer to it. If there are four legs and a thing on top, instead of calling it a thing, we call it a table. There's nothing innately connecting the word table to the object, but it's a convenient way to refer to it. So when I say table, you know what I'm referring to. When I say chair, you know it's an object that you sit on. When I say plate, you know it's an object that we serve on. But there's no innate connection between the word and the object. In the Torah, that's not the way things work. When Hashem said to Adam Rishon, I want you to name all the animals in creation. Adam Rishon gave a name to each animal of creation, but Hashem had a specific reason why He wanted Adam to do that. Hashem said to the Malachim, I'm going to create man. The Malachim said, what is the nature of this man? Hashem said, his wisdom is greater than yours. What Hashem was telling the Malachim was, up until that point, everything in creation was dependent on the upper world. And now the reason for creation, the purpose for creation was going to be formed. It was Adam. And this Adam was to be greater than all the Malachim. The Malachim didn't understand what Hashem said. And so Hashem said, tell me the names of the animals. And Malachim looked at the animals and couldn't name them. Hashem created Adam, and each animal Hashem brought in front of Adam, and each animal Adam defined perfectly. Zushar, Zuchamor, Zusus. But the Mepharshim explained, when he said Zuchamor, he defined the essence, the traits, the nature, the proclivities of that animal with one phrase. And that phrase was not just a label as in horse, donkey, or cow. That phrase defined the essence, defined what that object was. It was a name that related to the shorish, to the actual source of what the nature of that animal was. And with one fell swoop, he defined the essence of the animals. And the malachim were nishtomim. They were just mind-boggled. They couldn't believe the wisdom to be able to just look at an object and not just to see its essence, but to understand, perceive its proclivities, its nature, its essence, and sum it up in one term that defines it was incredible wisdom. E equals MC square is not a label. It's a formula that Einstein used to define one of the essences of creation, the relationship between energy and matter. With that term, he didn't just use a... Ta- let me use a, the theory of relativity. With E equals MC square, he wrote the formula of the relationship between energy and matter. Far more than a label, he defined the essence, he defined the formula, and that's what Adam Rishon did on a much more profound level. He defined the essence of each animal in creation, 
and he showed wisdom that's incredible. Now, we have different names to refer to Hashem. We have things called Kinuyim, and we have things called Shemos. Kinuyim are, I don't know how to say this, the best English word is a nickname. It's not appropriate, and it's not really proper, but that's really sort of what it means. A Kinuy is not a name of Hashem, but it refers to Hashem in a sort of way. So, for instance, Hashem is called the Makom. Why is Hashem called the Makom? Because Makom means place. Hashem is present in every particle of physicality. Hashem created the world and maintains the world, so that if you see anything anywhere in creation, you know that Hashem is present, keeping it in creation, because if Hashem wasn't there, it wouldn't be. Hashem is everything, everywhere, and therefore Hashem is called Makom, the place, because Hashem is the place of everything. That's a kinui. That's, again, excuse my expression, a nickname. I say excuse my expression because it's not really covered shemayim to use that kind of expression, but the point being that that is sort of like a label. It refers to an aspect of Hashem, but it doesn't define Hashem in any way. Rachum and Chanun are kinuyim. They refer to Hashem. You're not allowed to use those terms in a bathroom because when you say Rachum and Chanun, you're referring to Hashem. Those are kinuyim to Hashem. They're not the names of Hashem, but they're a kinoi, they're sort of a label, sort of a nickname, referring to an aspect of the way that Hashem interacts with the world. Now, then there are actual names of Hashem. There are seven names of Hashem that actually define the essence of Hashem. Adoshem refers to Hashem as the Adon Hakol, the master of everything in creation. And when you say in Davening or in Chumash, when it's spelled Aleph Dalid Nun Yud, it means Adon HaKol. You're supposed to have in mind, Hashem is the master of everything in creation. Elohim. Elohim refers to an Midas Adin. And we, when we say that expression, we refer to Hashem as Bala Kochas Kulam, the energy source of all creation, one who maintains and keeps everything in creation. Yud Kei And that refers to Hashem as infinite. Hashem is infinite, and not only is the master of creation, but He is infinite, has no end, no self, etc. Okay. Now, in addition to the seven names that we're allowed to say, there's a shame on Mofurish that we're not allowed to say. Now, the truth is, no one I know knows it anyway to say, but this shame on Mofurish has certain powers, and one is not allowed to say it unless he's infused with the energy, the power of the Kedusha to say it and use it properly. Now, let's focus on something that Derek Hashem asks. He says, any name that's going to define the essence of Hashem, by definition, is false. Why? Because the name of Hashem is supposed to define Hashem. But Hashem is beyond any definition. Any definition that we have refers to objects, things, in our frame of reference. And we can even define things in our world based on their parameters, a building is so tall. An elephant is so heavy. Something is very bright. Something is very dark. What it means is there's a limit to it. So for instance, an elephant weighs 14,000 pounds. There's a limit to its weight. It's very heavy. A feather is very light. It has a limited weight. The elephant has a much greater weight, but it too has a limit to its weight. A building is 96 stories tall, 
it has a limit to it. The only way we define things, the only way we relate to things, are by its limits. The problem is, Hashem has no boundaries. Hashem is limitless, boundless, and beyond any physicality, beyond any limits. Hashem is Ein Sof, without any limits. And therefore, if you think about it, we cannot comprehend Hashem. We can't relate to Hashem, but more than that, any reference to Hashem, by definition, is going to be false. If I tell you Hashem is very strong, I'm putting a limit on Hashem's strength. If I tell you Hashem is very large, again, I'm putting a limit on Hashem's size. Hashem is boundless, limitless, beyond any definition, beyond any description, because Hashem is everywhere. And if you want a sort of a muscle that might help a little bit, I want you to try what I call a little bit of a mind exercise. Imagine that there is an infinite bagel. An infinite bagel. A bagel that goes on and on and on and fills up everywhere. How do you bite into this infinite bagel? There's no edge. There's no place to bite. Because it's... It, it, Hashem is Ein Sof. Hashem is everywhere. There's no limit to Hashem. Hashem doesn't fill the 13 billion light years of the cosmos. Hashem is beyond that because Hashem has no limitation. There's no limits. And once you understand that there are no limits to Hashem, number one, we can't relate to Hashem. And number two, any name of Hashem trying to define Hashem by definition is false. Nevertheless, Derech Hashem explains to us that Hashem wants to have names that define the essence of Hashem. And this is a concept called Simsum. For Hashem to allow us to relate to Him, Hashem was mitzamsim, Hashem limited Himself, kaviyoch, if that could be. Meaning to say, Hashem took on a form of limits so that we can relate to Hashem. You have to be very careful with these concepts because you could become a kofer. Certainly if you misunderstand them, you could fall off the edge of things. But the understanding is, Hashem put sort of limits on Himself, if it could be, so that we could relate to Hashem, so that we could have a relationship to Hashem, so that Hashem could have names that define on some element the essence of Hashem. And, for instance, the names of Hashem define an aspect of Hashem. But it's not just the names of Hashem define an aspect of Hashem. Hashem gave us kochos to use those names, and when we do them, we effectuate things in the world. Let me begin with one very important observation. If you'd like to fundamentally understand Hashem's relationship to us, I have a mushal that I think is very, very helpful. Imagine that we are playing a internet-based game, a cloud-based game. What's happening basically is I'm over here at my computer and I'm playing my guy. You're over there, you're playing your guy, and she's over there playing her person. We're all playing this very large multiplayer internet game. Now, when I'm playing my game over here, I'm typing in to the keyboard, and in the cloud, something is happening. In the cloud, the signals tell my guy to move forward and, and chop wood, and then he gets paid for the wood, he puts the money in his bank, and then he goes back, and he's doing his things. And when you tell your guy to do his thing, so again, he does his thing, and maybe he's a merchant, he's selling his stuff, and he's putting... We each have our little representative there in the world of the cloud, who does his thing, and the result of it is we get money in the bank, maybe we get to buy things, I get to, I have a house, I have clothing, my, my house is big, your house is little, and my guy has lots of gold, yours doesn't, and we're playing this internet-based game. 
Now, in a previous Derech Hashem Shir, I explained, if you want to fundamentally understand Bitochan, and really much of Amuna, you have to understand why it is that I cannot touch you in any way. One of the bedrocks of our Amuna system is that I cannot help you, and I cannot harm you. I can scheme, I can dream, I cannot touch you in any way. If Hashem decreed that you're going to suffer a certain pain, you're going to suffer it, whether I'm there or not. If Hashem decreed that you're not going to suffer the pain, there's nothing I can do to change that. There's nothing I can do, because everything is controlled by Hashem. And the corollary, I can be the most generous person in the world, if you're not supposed to get that money, I'll give it to you, go out in one pocket, out the other pocket, I cannot harm you, I cannot help you, explains the Chavaz of Avaz, that's the essence of our Emuna system, the essence of our Bitochen system, Hashem decrees every outcome, Hashem is involved in every activity under the sun, no human being can harm me, no human being can help me. Now that's the concept. The question is, how do we understand it? How, how do we relate to it? Because at the end of the day, when I'm walking down the street, and three thugs jump out, I'm in trouble. And I know that my destiny is in their hands. How do I understand that Hashem is involved in every activity. Now, on one level, the way to understand it is that everything in existence was brought into existence and is held in existence by Hashem at any given moment. What that means in plain, simple language is my hands, my arms, my legs, my chest, I, the essence of me, am being held in existence by Hashem every moment. Hashem didn't just create the world and it is, a yesh ayin creation, a from nothing, something creation, requires not just the creation, but requires sustaining it as well. Again, in the previous Derech Hashem Shia, we explained the mushal, the seagull mushal, where imagine it's a February evening, and I close my eyes, I'm shivering at the bus stop, and I'm waiting for the bus, and it's so cold that I close my eyes and imagine a beach scene. I see the white sand, and blue ocean, cloudless sky, and suddenly the lone seagull begins wafting across the sky. In a moment, the bus comes splash. Gone is the ocean blue. Gone is the sand. Gone is the seagull. I'm the dreamer. As long as I dream the dream, the objects remain where they are. The minute I stop thinking about the seagull, the minute I stop thinking about the sand, it ceases to exist. That's Hashem's relationship to everything in creation. When Hashem created the world, Hashem is the creator and maintainer of everything in existence. And that means just like I to the seagull, if I stop thinking about the seagull, it stops to exist. If Hashem ceases to infuse energy into any particle of physicality, it ceases to exist. No more there, gone, not in existence. So as I walk down the street, Hashem is keeping me in existence at any given moment. Hashem is keeping the sidewalk in existence. Hashem is keeping planet Earth in existence. Everything in this world is being kept, maintained by Hashem every minute, all the time. So, when I'm on that street, and three thugs surround me, the simple reality is, as Hashem is keeping me in existence, Hashem is keeping them in existence as well. Their arms, their legs, their head, their chest. And when that fellow pulls out a gun and holds it to my head, if my time is up, there's nothing that you or I or anyone else is going to do to change that. But if, in fact, my time is not up, there's nothing that he's going to do to change my destiny. I, bullets, oh my goodness, bullets, 
Bullets are kept in existence by Hashem. Guns are kept in existence by Hashem. Triggers are kept in existence by Hashem. And his ability to pull the trigger and have the bullet come out and hit me or miss me is absolutely, completely beyond Hashem. Hashem controls every single outcome, everything that occurs. And when you understand this on one level, you're able to understand Hashem's involvement, Hashem controlling every outcome, because anything that exists is constantly kept in existence by Hashem at any given moment, at any given time. So, of course, no one can change the plot. No one can change the story. If the story is supposed to play out one way, there's no one in creation, no power in creation that can change it, because Hashem is keeping everything in existence, guiding everything, and nothing in existence can happen without Hashem's total dominion, without Hashem's total involvement in it. Now, when we discuss the human being, we have to understand something called Bechira. Bechira, and again, I'm going to revisit a concept that we discussed in a previous Derech Hashem Shir. Bechira is one of the most difficult concepts to understand. And if you like to fundamentally understand why it's a difficult concept, let's go back to my dream for a moment. I'm at the bus stop, I'm shivering, I close my eyes, and I imagine this beautiful beach scene, white sand, ocean blue, cloudless sky, and one lone, one lone seagull begins wafting across the sky. Now imagine at a certain point I say to the seagull, Seagull, I want you to fly east. And the seagull says, Mm-mm, I don't want to fly east. But I say, but I want you to. But the seagull says, no, I don't want to, I want to fly west. But I say to the seagull, sir, I want to go east. He says, no, I want to go west. And we have a debate, east, west, east, west. That can't happen. It can't happen, why? Because I am the dreamer. I am the creator. I am the maintainer. And there's nothing in the dream that can do anything other than what I will it to do. But more than that, there's no will in the dream other than what I will. There aren't two voices. There's not a seagull and me. I am the creator of the seagull. Not just the physical presence or the imagery of the seagull. I am the creator of the essence of the seagull, his personality, his will, everything. So there are no two voices. There's nowhere I say do this and he says do that. Because I am the dreamer. I created the dream and everything there. And when you understand that, you understand why free will is such a difficult concept. How could Hashem create something that has an independent will, an independent presence, an independent entity with its own agenda? And yet many, many things in creation have just that. There are billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of malachim. Derech Hashem explains to us that when Hashem created the world, Hashem made many, many tiers of things to guide creation. Everything is held by Hashem, but Hashem created many, many levels of malachim, many sarim, many kochos. Each is in charge of another aspect of the world. There's a sar, a certain powerful malach, who's in charge of the wind. A certain powerful sar who's in charge of the trees. There's a certain sar that's in charge of the sun. The reason why the sun rises and sets exactly as it does is because Hashem created a malach, a spiritual entity that is the essence of that sun. Anything in the physical world has a spiritual dimension behind it. As a matter of fact, the Derek Hashem explains to us, the spiritual dimension is far more powerful, far more pervasive, and it's the essence of anything. Anything in the physical world is just the tip of the iceberg sustained by the spiritual world. 
the sun that we know it, the 850-odd thousand miles across, the powerful sun, is but a tip of the iceberg of the powerful Malach behind it, and that powerful Malach guides it, and brings it, makes it rise and set in its right time, keeps everything moving. Hashem created that Malach, Hashem sustains the Malach, Hashem taught the Malach what to do, when to do, how to do it, but Hashem does not directly control every aspect of it. Hashem created many, many levels of Malachim, Sarim, Kochos, different forces that engage and keep things moving as they're supposed to. Each of those Malachim, each of those Sarim, each of those Kochos have an independent Das. They're a Das Nifra. A Das Nifra means my mind is separate from your mind. My will is separate from your will. If you ever tried to convince a young child to do something that the child didn't want to do, you understand that human beings have a will. A will means I want or I don't want. This is my agenda. I got my will. I don't want to eat. I don't want to go to sleep now. I don't want to, again, try to teach a child to eat peas. When a child doesn't want to eat peas, you quickly see that a human being was given rotson, will, adas nifra, a separate independent thought process, and an entity in and of itself. And again, it's not just man, all of the malachim, all of the kochos, all of the sarim have an independent will. To create an independent will is well beyond human comprehension. With all of the artificial intelligence, all the AI programs and everything, if you think about it, it's physically impossible to create an independent will. If I write a computer program, if this, then that, if this, then that, if this, then that, Ultimately, it's a series of commands. And no matter how many science fiction writers write about the robot who takes over and now then begins creating new robots and creates its own world, it's science fiction. It's science fiction because any computer is merely programming. It's bits and bytes written by human being coding, if this, then that, if this, then that. Now, you can create pretty clever computers, you can create a computer program that you click the button on your Tesla, and from the parking lot it comes to greet you. It knows where to stop, knows where to go. Okay, that's very clever, but again, it's all ifs and buts. If this, then that. If this, then that. There's no independent will. There's no rutson, and there's no will. It's programming, and no matter how sophisticated you make the programming, even if it can drive from here to Kentucky... And even if it can stop at a at the at the rest stop and manage to fill itself back up with electricity, it's only because someone programmed it. If this, then that. There's no independent will. To create an independent will is something that only a Baruch Hu can do. And Hashem created something that's beyond human understanding, and that is Hashem created entities separate from Himself. Hashem made you and I and all of the billions and billions of kochos and malachim, etc., as independent will. I have my own will. You have your own will. I can tell you it's not good for your health to smoke. You have the right, the option, and the ability to either smoke or not smoke. And all of my warnings and all of my advisories and everything will not force you to do anything. You have your own will, your own rotson, and this capacity to create something with an independent will is well beyond human ability, but even more than that, well beyond human capacity to envision or to imagine. Nevertheless, Hashem did it. And when Hashem created the world, Hashem created many, many forces with independent will. So let's go back now to the mushal with the seagull, 
and let's understand it a little bit more clearly. So again, it's a February night, I close my eyes, I, remember, I imagine this beach scene, the sand, the ocean, cloudless sky, and one lone seagull. But I've created this seagull with something that no human being can create, I created it with an independent will. I said, Mr. Seagull, you're on your own, make your own decisions. Now at that point I say to Seagull, Mr. Seagull, please go east. He says, uh-uh, I want to go west. I say, please, Mr. Seagull, please go east. He says, no, I want to go west. Please, no, please, no. So he goes west. Now you have to understand, at that moment, he physically cannot do anything that I don't agree to. Even though I gave him his own will, even though I gave him the ability to make his own decisions, I'm keeping him in existence. He physically can't fly. He physically doesn't have wings. My imagery is what keeps him. So I am the keeper of the seagull. Even if I gave him his independent will, he can only do what he wants to do if I agree with it and allow him to fly west. So I warned him to go east, and he says, no, I want to go west. I ultimately have the free will to determine whether he will be able to do it or not. Even if he has his own independent das, and even if he has his own independent will, he doesn't practically have the ability to do it because I'm his keeper, I'm his creator, I'm his maintainer, 